Welcome to East Asia Now, a podcast that brings you informed perspectives on current issues related to East Asia. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the East Asia Now podcast. My name is David Fields, and I am the Associate Director of the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I am joined today by Bridget E. Vance, Associate Professor of History at Lawrence University. Dr. Vance earned her BA in Psychology at Carleton College, her MA in East Asian Studies at Stanford University, and her PhD in History at Princeton University. Her research focuses on the intellectual and cultural history of dreams and dream divination in late Ming China. Dr. Vance, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Oh, you're quite welcome. So I'd like to start these conversations by just talking a little bit about your background and how you got into studying what you studied. So what was your path to studying China and also to studying dream divination? Well, I, I think as is often the case for most of us, um, there are these moments in life that feel maybe small or somewhat insignificant. And in retrospect, when we look back on them, we say, aha, that was a pivotal moment. Um, I have a, a cousin who has a beautiful turn of phrase, and um, he says, the gates of fate swing on the hinges of the inconsequential. (laughs) Um, And I think for me, it was really, um, I was 17 years old and registering for classes in college. And um, I wanted to do something for the language requirement that took me away from what I'd sort of grown up in, steeped in French culture. And um, I made a beeline for a table um, that had no line. This was the Asian languages table. And the two Japanese language professors were in the midst of a conversation. So I turned to the Chinese language professor <laughs> and I said, should I take beginning Chinese? You know, what was he going to say? He said, of course. And yes. um, I signed up. And, you know, I suppose um, what I really wasn't expecting is that I really just, um, I fell in love with the language. I absolutely loved it. Um, And it was hard, and I realized that um, after a year, I still could barely do anything, Mm -hmm. but I'd invested a year, so I thought, well, I'll just keep going. And so I just sort of kept going, and that ultimately um, took me to China, where I lived for a while. And it was really, um, I was working at a software company in Beijing as a translator, and um, I had a coworker, and we used to talk about dreams sometimes during breaks. And I remember one day he stopped by my workstation. He said, I think you'll really like this book. You know, I, I, I don't remember where he got it. So I borrowed the book and I photocopied it. And it was really fascinating and I couldn't really understand it. Um, and it actually, that it was the sort of my, my first encounter with a late Ming dream divination manual. There it was. It's a 20th century reprint um, and uh, I just couldn't step away. I, I, I was hooked. All right. 
Well, you know, I, I love I love that turn of phrase, and uh, at, at any rate, it's much better than what got me into East Asian studies, which was being deeply in debt as an undergraduate and needing a way to find a, a way to make money after I learned that a BA in history is not a very marketable degree. But, yeah, they don't tell you that. You know, <laughs> they don't in tell it for you the that. money. <laughs> yes. All right. So I, I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about dream divination and what did dream divination mean to late Ming Chinese society? Well, I, the particular. Um, sort of substrata, I would say, is, is educated late Ming men. So just sort of getting even a little bit more specific. So literati. And it was a time in which society, political society, um, climate change, strife, domestic turbulence, it was not an easy time, and perhaps that may feel somewhat familiar to, <laughs> yes. to us now for different reasons. Yes. Um, and I think... For some literati, rather than resign themselves to apathy, um, they sort of turned within and used their skills, their training, techniques that they knew to their advantage to craft an answer to life's uncertainties through text and through dreams. Um, and it's, I think, the sort of intersection then between the everyday and also... Um, the sort of the deep scholarly enterprise that they were so invested in. And um, I, I find this quite compelling. Mm -hmm. um, I think the other aspect that I really enjoy is, um, you know, within the framework of what was known and accepted, they, the literati, I think, really could, could play. And I don't mean this in sort of a frivolous sense of the word, but to think creatively, to engage with the past in maybe new and innovative ways. Um, and I, I find that inspiring and moving. So were they looking at dream divination as a way to maybe learn something about the future that could help them through this period that you're discussing? Or was it a little bit more of a maybe a type of escapism from from the challenges that they were facing, or maybe a bit of both? I think it was more a bit of both. Okay. Um, so a little bit of escapism, but also a way of looking at, um, of, of finding answers in the past yeah. for what was yet to come. Okay. Yeah. I, and this actually segues as well as your, your opening vignette about how you, how you came to Dream Divination about a question that I wanted to ask, which is how was their approach to dreams different from a European or a, a more Western approach to dream divination? I, I hadn't really thought about it until I was looking at your work, but actually there's divination running through uh, the Western intellectual tradition, including all throughout the Bible and, and many religious texts. I wonder if you could comment on, on maybe the similarities or the differences between the two approaches. Absolutely. You know, uh, dreams... It was sort of my interest in dreams in some ways came before my interest in the place and mm -hmm. the language. Um, and this seems to, the, the sort of topic um, for me really beautifully uh, brings together my interests in the language, Chinese language and um, the written language, also the spoken language, and um, a sort of an understanding of for lack of a, you know, a better word, a, a sort of a history of psychology, of the psyche, of our understanding of who we are, those kind of big questions. Um, I think at a, 
not to overgeneralize, but um, I think if you look at any cultural interest in dreams from different times and places, the impulse really, I think, comes from the same place, this sort of grappling with who are we and where have we been and how might that shape where we're going, a curiosity about what happens at night. Is it real? What is real? Um, you know, those kinds of questions. And in that sense, um, I, I find that late Ming dream divination is really no different from dream practice in other places. Mm. Of course, that said, there are these sort of wonderful um, variations on a theme, and that maybe is what keeps me coming back yeah. and circumambulating and diving deeper into the texts and saying, well, what did, what did dreams really mean? And I, I think that the deeper you dig in, the more difference you do start to see. Um, certainly in terms of, I think, um, the ways in which the, the sort of quotidian realities, the culture intersected with what was occupying people's minds um, in this time period with the civil examination system of, you know, the, the sort of the purpose of education is taking these exams and climbing the ladder of success and ultimately landing a position in the bureaucracy. Um, so a lot of the recorded dreams from this time period uh, stem from anxiety, sort of an alleviation of anxiety. Will I pass the exams? How will I do? Will I land a position? Um, am I going to be okay? And um, you know, one of the dream encyclopedias that has really been at the heart of my research, um, there, there exist multiple copies, extant copies, from the late Ming in different libraries around the world. And one of the differences that I found interesting is the versions in Japan do not include the examination dreams because they didn't have the examination system. So that's already same time period in a lot of ways a very similar um, you know, sort of reading of the past but different. Yes. So that's maybe one sort of um, small but interesting and noteworthy, noteworthy example. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. And I, I assume if these encyclopedias would have exist are still extant in Korea, they would have been, had that sort of divination about exams because Korea wonder, also had an exam yes, system. Yes. Um, my travels, unfortunately, did not take me there. Um, but I, I hope that, you know, knock on wood, if, you know, we're able to travel a little bit more freely, yeah. I would very much like to to go and check it out for myself. Yeah. And did these encyclopedias circulate in Europe and outside of East Asia at, at this time, or no? Not at this time, um, to my knowledge. Okay. And I think they're quite specialized. You yeah. know, they're written um, in classical Chinese. This would have been, I think, really challenging for anyone uh, other than maybe a very select few group of people who, very select group of people. But um, I think the early modern impulse also to categorize and yeah. classify, right? You have these encyclopedic projects, um, not just in Ming, China, but elsewhere in Europe at the same time. And that I think is also sort of a similar sense of let's 
put the world in order. Yes. So all the phenomena, all the things, the whole universe, um, everything from small to large, large back down to small again. It's cataloged. Yes, yes. You 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 mentioned that that you got into this because a a colleague you know handed you one of these manuals when you were working in Beijing, um, and I wonder is dream divination still an important practice in modern China today, and and how is it similar and how is it different? Yeah, you know, um, in the summer of two thousand fifteen, I traveled to Fujian Province to um, a dream incubation temple. Um, that has sort of a mythologized history and then also a documented history um, that really has established this site as a place of dreaming. And um, it's recorded dream seekers from as early as the Tang Dynasty. And when I went in 2015, you know, there's this infrastructure, you know, you can pay to rent a little sleeping mat and you sleep in the temple. Um, there's this protocol, how do you pray for a dream? Um, like you light your incense and um, you pray to the nine immortals. You tell them who you are, where you're from, what you want to know. You sleep and then in the morning you have your dream um, analyzed by one of the temple monks. And let's see, I was there in July and it was just beastly hot. Uh, there were other people there who were sleeping on the mats on the floor of the temple. And um, they did say, uh, you know, I talked to some of the monks and they said that um, when the weather is cooler, they actually, um, there are several thousand people who come in the fall usually from all over, especially um, Macau and Guangzhou, mm -hmm. um, Guangdong province, Fujian province. Um, so I would say it's it's maybe regionally common. Mm -hmm. um, I I did not see a similar practice in northern China. Not to say it does not exist. Yeah. Um, and I you know part of the reason I went to this temple is because it's referenced in my quote unquote dream encyclopedia from the Ming. And I was yeah. so curious. Sure. I said, oh, I, I it still exists. I could go. Um, there are also dream incubation temples in, in Taiwan as well. Okay. Um, there's a sort of, there are, uh, there are a few sites. So I think that it has enjoyed a, a resurgence in popularity. I have not been back since. I imagine that the pandemic has shuttered. Yes. Um, a lot of this kind of activity, and I, you know, I don't know if there's sort of an online presence mm -hmm. or anything happening over WeChat. Um, that I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious to know. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I think at least anecdotally, um, I hesitate to make kind of a, a large-scale argument. Sure. But yes, I think that people dream and they're curious about yes, it, yes. so they're they're going to find ways of of making sense of it or trying to make sense of it. And, and the fact that these manuals were still circulating and it sounds like are still in print would, yeah. would seem to indicate a lot of curiosity about this. Yeah, um, and you know, there are a couple of um, centers. I worked with a professor in, in Guangzhou, uh, Professor Shen Heyong, who is um, a trained Jungian psychoanalyst. And he also has you know, training students and does work with dreams. So 
there's, uh, I think there's also sort of a growing uh, international community. Um, there's this website, worlddreambank.org, okay. and anyone can submit a dream, and then the creator of the site will categorize it for you. So you sort of, um, it's a fascinating site to look through. So it collects historical dreams as well as dreams of people all over the world. Yes. Oh, maybe one, one final question, perhaps slightly out of left field, but as I'm listening to you talk, I was thinking about one of the main topics of discussion coming out of modern Chinese politics would be Xi Jinping's Chinese dream, which I, I think from the American perspective, we think about that as a Chinese copy of the American dream, you know, a slogan that's been common here in the United States going back decades. But I wonder if the, the idea of a dream in China, the way Xi Jinping's using it, might have a different historical relevance and might resonate a little differently going back with this history of dream divination. Or is it, is it really more of an imported concept from the United States based on the American dream. Do you, do you have any thoughts or inklings on that? I, I know it's a very difficult question because he's, I don't think the dream he's referring to is a dream of, that you would actually have when you're asleep mm -hmm. versus more of a, a dream that you have about a longing for the future. Yeah. You know what's interesting is since that phrase has been coined and turned into this slogan, I've, I've actually gotten... Not a lot, but, you know, probably seven or eight emails from people asking if I wanted to participate in a panel, thinking or mistakenly thinking that was the kind of dream that I worked on. Yes. Um, and I, I found that very interesting. My, my sense is that it, it uh, does not connect explicitly to um, the kinds of dreams that people had let's say, at night while they slept and then divined or thought about um, the next day or um, actually it doesn't have to be the next day. It could be at any point in the future. But yeah, as you said, um, the use of dream as a, a wish, a hope, a desire for um, creating a certain vision of China, what China could be or mm -hmm. should be perhaps, um, and I don't, I, I mean, I, I imagine, right, sort of that it is an imagination, a collective imagination. Um, and in that sense, it shares perhaps some of the, the energy, right? When mm -hmm. you, like a dream also connects, I think, to an imagination. Um, but less, you know, maybe less explicitly so. Sure. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Dr. Vance, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you again so much for having me. It's really been lovely. East Asian Now is produced by the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This podcast is made possible by a Title VI grant to support international education from the U.S. Department of Education. For more information, please visit eastasia.wisc.edu. Our music is a traditional Korean sanjo performed by violinist Sohyun Park Altino. <laughs>